This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Selling your car? Visit Carvana and enter your license plate or VIN. Answer a few quick questions and you can get a real offer in seconds. When you finalize your offer, Carvana will pick it up so you never have to leave the comfort of home. Visit Carvana.com or download the app. Hey, it's Nyla. I'm your host for this edition of the News Roundup. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. I'm Nyla Budu from Axios Today, and it's time for another edition of the News Roundup. It's been a busy week of news, starting with a big win for President Biden on drug prices. Today is the start of a new deal for patients where Big Pharma doesn't just get a blank check at your expense and the expense of the American people. One GOP candidate steps out of the race and another has a new trial date set. March 4th, 2024 is when Donald Trump's federal trial will now start. March 5th is Super Tuesday when Mr. Trump's name may be on the ballot in at least 15 states. And after the Supreme Court forces its hand, the Environmental Protection Agency has a plan to remove protections for almost two-thirds of the country's wetlands. We've got a lot to get into, so let's welcome our panel and get into it. Margaret Tollev is an Axios senior contributor and director of Syracuse University's Institute for Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship in Washington, D.C. Also with us, Arthur Delaney, reporter at HuffPost. And a voice you're familiar with here on 1A, Todd Zwillick, Deputy D.C. Bureau Chief at Vice News and also author of the Breaking the Vote newsletter on democracy and indictments. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us today. Let's start in Kentucky. On Wednesday, a reporter asked Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell if he plans to run for re-election in 2026. After asking the reporter to repeat the question, McConnell seemed to freeze again. What are my thoughts about what? Running for re-election in 2026. Oh, that's it. Did you hear the question, Senator? Running for re-election in 2026? Yes. All right, I'm sorry, you all. We're going to need a minute. Senator McConnell is 81 years old. His freeze is similar to an incident that happened at the Capitol in July. On Thursday, the congressional physician said McConnell was, quote, medically cleared to continue with his Senate schedule. Margaret, that video and that audio is difficult to hear and watch. What has McConnell or his staff said about these incidents? Well, uh, Nyla, you're right. I mean, even just hearing it, if you have seen it before, you can feel that tension that was in that room as reporters are watching him thinking, oh, my God, what's happening? Uh, we know that he uh, has frozen before. We also know that he has fallen and had a concussion back in the spring. Uh, his staff has said a couple of things. In addition to making clear that he's consulted with a physician and he's been medically cleared, uh, they have said that he intends to serve his full term. And they quickly moved to have him both on the phone and communicate with all of his leadership team, who so far have rallied around him. Of course, his leadership team are also potential <laughs> successors who would be fighting with each other. So they have quickly sought to uh, assert his continued leadership and uh, kind of rally the wagons. Arthur, what are you hearing on the Hill in terms of what politicians in or outside of McConnell's party have said about the senator's ability to govern? Well, Republican senators are being quiet and 
you know, speaking off the record to a few reporters, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene is being really rude and saying that <laughs> no, uh, old people have got to get out of Congress. Joe Biden being really nice, saying, I called Mitch, and these things happen when you've had a severe injury like he did in March. And uh, that, that's the state of things. To that point about age, though, Todd, there was an AP poll released this week where three quarters of respondents said Joe, President Biden was too old to serve another term. Half of the respondents said the same thing about former President Donald Trump. Biden is 80. Trump is 77. As we look at the age of our leadership in Washington, how much of a concern is this going to be going forward here? Ongoing conversation about American gerontocracy, and they're not the only two. Biden and uh, Trump and McConnell, as we're talking about. I think, you know, it's no surprise that Americans feel that way about Joe Biden. He has visibly slowed down in terms of his speech. There's no question. Uh, but Republican messaging and right wing messaging hammers on this constantly and that they do it for a reason. It has an effect. This type of advertising works and it works well. So the, the perception of that has sunk in. I think what's more important than age is performance. Overall, for Mitch McConnell, too, it's interesting with Mitch McConnell um, when you actually talked to a couple of um, neurology type experts on this without knowing exactly what's going on with him. You may be aware that most people have narrowed this down to one of two things, either mini strokes, which can happen after somebody has a bad fall or focal seizures, which can also happen. Very common, not very, but common after a, a bad concussion. It appears that maybe Mitch McConnell is is suffering focal transient seizures. He returns to normal function afterward. And to be honest, people will tell you there's no real indication when you have those that his cognitive abilities or his work abilities are actually – it's embarrassing and it's weird and it's bad politics and reporters talk about it and Friday shows talk about it. But is he actually a worse leader now? Unclear. Maybe not. Although age of our politicians is a massive conversation going forward. It's going to be a liability for Biden, too. It's, it's right. Little... And just to be clear, we don't have any medical confirmation Correct. from no, no, no. This... the McConnell about... And they're not giving any. Right. They're well, not giving Well, they're any. saying he's having lightheadedness. Right. Which, which is well, weird not because everyone knows what lightheadedness feels like and you don't stare into the void for 30 seconds. No. Well, there is an attending physician for the U.S. Capitol. Uh, his name is Brian Monahan. He, uh, he, he said that he consulted with... Um, with the leader's neurology team, most of us are not walking around with the neurology team. So there have obviously been concerns for at least since the spring about uh, what it, what is going on with um, Senator McConnell's recovery. But I think the part of the political reaction is part of a couple of larger trends. And one is, to Todd's point, that there are several political leaders from both parties in their late 70s, 80s, and in one case, 90s. And um, they kind of all suffer from being lumped in together, except Donald Trump. Let's set that off to the side. Um, but I think, like, there's no indication that Mitch McConnell's problems uh, have anything to do with Dianne Feinstein's problems, right, right. at all. Uh, but if you're Nikki Haley and part of your presidential campaign is to say, um, it's time to move old people out of leadership so that the next generation can take over, you're going to lump everybody in in that conversation. If you are... A, an acolyte of former President Trump, if you're in the MAGA camp, you are going to make it seem like Mitch McConnell is intellectually incapable of serving because you don't like Mitch McConnell's brand of institutional Republican politics. And so he's facing these internal Republican Party headwinds 
as well as the fact that he is now the kind of poster boy for Democrats aren't the only people with old people in charge. And so and there's some complicated Kentucky politics because Kentucky's governor is a Democrat. Everyone else in Kentucky is a Republican. The Kentucky legislature preemptively changed the law to limit the governor's ability to tap a Democrat should Leader McConnell need to go uh, leave office early. And I think all of that is part of why McConnell's staff is like, uh, hey, this is concussion related and he's not going anywhere. On the 2020 campaign trail, President Biden promised to lower prescription drug prices. This week, he announced Medicare will be able to start negotiating prices for 10 common medications. He says this means prices will eventually become cheaper for the U.S. government and American seniors. Arthur, let's start with what medications are on this list and how essential are these medications, especially when we're talking about senior citizens? Well, they picked these 10 medicines because the government spends $50 $50 billion a year on them. And the whole idea here is to spend less. So it's stuff people have heard of like Eliquis, Zarelto, and there's also some diabetes medicines. Uh, so it's major drugs that cost the government a ton of money that a lot of people take. And it's just an, a huge development in health policy, although it's not something people will notice in their pocketbooks for several years. Like, I think this this doesn't take effect until 26, 2026. And in the intervening time, we will have the actual negotiation. So it's, it's a, a major talking point, a huge victory for Democrats, but also something that has like a, a long time to, for people to, to actually notice. This announcement came one year after Biden signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which makes these cost savings possible. For years, Big Pharma blocked this. They kept prescription drug prices high to increase their profits and extend patents on existing drugs to suppress fair competition instead of innovating. Margaret, do we know why Medicare hasn't been able to negotiate drug prices up until this point? Yeah, because they're they've been banned from it. It's been literally baked in the cake of the law. And I'm gonna try to explain this. But it doesn't really make any sense, even if you understand the technicalities of why the law has stood this way. Um, It's literally inside Medicare Part D, which is how prescription drug coverage has been established in the law. Um, There is something called – I think it's called the non-interference clause. And it literally has prevented Health and Human Services from – inserting itself in between the pharmacies and the drug companies and um, and essentially from setting a price structure or negotiating a price structure. The Inflation Reduction Act, uh, when it was passed, I guess, last year, um, it allowed that direct negotiation. And the pharmaceutical companies are suing now, saying that that effort, the one we're talking about now, that has led to the setting of these first 10 drugs, itself violates the Constitution. Why would it violate the Constitution, you may ask? Um, the, The First and the Fifth Amendment, which deal with free speech and which deal with the government's ability to take your stuff. And the retort to the... Their lawsuits are being filed now. You will see them coming from pharma and individual pharmaceutical companies and the Chamber of Commerce. I used to be a healthcare reporter back as a young cub on Capitol Hill and even before. And they... I mean, Democrats have been chasing this policy for close to 20 years. 
at this point, and they finally got it. The lawsuits will come. I think the major retort to the lawsuit is, hey, guys, Medicare is voluntary. You don't have to be here. If you don't want to sell your drugs to seniors through Medicare Part D, then don't. But you can't claim it's a violation on your First Amendment when nobody's forcing you to sell your drugs in this massive marketplace in the first place. It's time for a quick break. When we return, Justice Clarence Thomas finally discloses his dealings with Harlan Crow. We discuss the impact of the release of these documents and, of course, the latest on former President Trump. All that and more after this short break. Stay with us. On this week's Wild Card, we talk with Issa Rae about those moments where our lives could have gone another direction. Definitely wasn't supposed to be with that guy at all. At all. But I still think about it. I'm Rachel Martin. Issa Rae tells us how to make peace with the path not taken. That's on the Wild Card podcast from NPR, the game where cards control the conversation. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Let's get back to the roundup with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. This week, he finally disclosed that Republican mega donor Harlan Crow recently paid for private jet trips for him to attend a speech in Texas and for a vacation at Crow's luxurious New York estate. Thomas has been under scrutiny for accepting lavish, lavish gifts from Crow. Arthur, what impact could the release of these documents have? Well, well first of all, it's a big deal that Justice Thomas confirmed ProPublica's reporting after all his allies were saying this is an attack on the court. Uh, Now, Todd may want to fight me on this. I don't think it will have a big impact because the court will continue to ignore the calls for reform and Congress won't do anything. Yeah, I'm not going to fight you on that at all. I mean, um, the court has shown basically no will and John Roberts just shown no will to force uh, new ethical rules at the Supreme Court. You hear rumblings like, oh, we're talking about it behind the scenes. Maybe we'll hand down a scroll at some point and get more serious about um, conflict of interest and the appearance of conflict of interest, which is vital. There are some Democrats in the Senate that have been pushing on this harder than others. Yeah, what's um, the status of that? I, I mean, uh, Sheldon Whitehouse is kind of the lead on the Judiciary Committee, right, Artie, on this. And, um, and he said, this is clean up on aisle three, which was kind of funny. I guess he means the the Article Three of the Constitution, <laughs> yeah, 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 third branch. It was clever, um, but nothing, none of this is going to get by uh, the Republican House. Uh, so, force forces for reform coming from Congress are non-existent. Sam Alito, Justice Alito, went in front of a conference and said Congress has no power to regulate the Supreme Court. That's false. They do have the power if they got serious, but they about won't. It, but they won't. I mean, these are jobs for life. Okay, number one and number two. Um, most Americans know very little about the Supreme Court and the way it works. Uh, polling from earlier this year has shown, for whatever it's worth, doesn't matter because you're not elected, that uh, Justice uh, Thomas is the least popular or the most unpopular or controversial member of the Supreme Court. Same survey showed that like a little, only a little more than half of Americans even thought they knew him well enough to rate him or any of these justices well enough to rate any of them. So uh, it is still the branch that is the most out of touch. We've seen uh, or the most sort of out of beyond the realm of... Out of the consciousness yeah, of the American public. out of sort of public access, right? And Gallup has been measuring trust in institutions for uh, decades. The Supreme Court, until recently, had always been held in really high esteem, and we've seen that drop significantly over the course, essentially, of Donald Trump's presidency. 
So let's move on to another branch, the executive. It's September, and the first primary is still months away, but the 2024 presidential election is already in swing. In polls, former President Donald Trump leads contenders for the GOP ticket by a wide margin. Newcomer candidate Vivek Ramaswamy is gaining ground against Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who's polling a far second. This week, rapper Eminem sent Ramaswamy a cease and desist letter, insisting he stop rapping the hit Lose Yourself at campaign events. I'll respect his wishes, but I would just say, will the real Slim Shady please stand up? (laughs) Eminem in his rise used to be a guy who actually stood up to the establishment. That was Ramaswamy speaking to MSNBC on Tuesday. The Republican candidate pool did get smaller after Miami Mayor Francis Suarez announced he was dropping out this week. Margaret was not qualifying for the debate the end of the road for Mayor Suarez. Well, if you just look at this superficially, he did uh, say uh, back earlier this month that um, candidates who didn't qualify for the first debate should drop out. So it would have been hard for him to stay in since he didn't yeah, don't get in the way. <laughs> qualify. He was a interesting, potentially interesting candidate. He uh, would have been the uh, sole Latino candidate on, on that stage. He's Cuban-American, uh, young uh, mayor, really interested in AI issues. He's also facing some scrutiny at home uh, when it comes to uh, his relationship with the real estate developer. But I think just as a basic bottom line threshold issue, both his public statement kind of forced his hand on this. And also, like, he didn't have the the, the money, the backing, the momentum, and it's a crowded field. So um, – and he'd had some stumble on foreign policy, the Hugh Hewitt, what are Uyghurs? Oh, I didn't understand the pronunciation. So it just wasn't a great test run for him, and it has ended rather quickly. Can I just say for Vivek Ramaswamy, if we can get back on that for one second, have you not learned not to pick a fight with Eminem? I mean – the world is rid- is littered with rappers who picked fights with Eminem. Not that he's a rapper. I, I suspect that maybe Ramaswamy is too small. Um, Eminem won't decide to crush him with a track the way he did to Machine Gun Kelly or so many others um, because Ramaswamy is going to fade from the scene. I, I think um, by the time the primary heats up again and everybody's still 40 points behind Donald Trump to the extent that M is watching this race, he Don't might you think choose. he'd love to get elevated by Eminem? Yes, that's oh, the whole theory the whole of point. his candidacy, to pick fights with everybody and get yeah, yelled it's at. The, it's why The weekend went after Eminem for the exact – you get clout by going after – you know, somebody in the top five of all time. could even get your own talk show. So as we are a week out from the debate, what did we see this week in terms of the rest of the GOP field and other candidates? What did we see this week? Well, we saw the continued uh, Ramaswamy boomlet. Like we're just, the, yeah. the news is just digesting the fact that this newcomer is someone we must reckon with for these, for this month. Could be a function of board reporters, which also happens in late August. Um, I I shouldn't be saying this much. I I can't predict what's going to happen with Ramaswamy's candidacy, but it seems to be based, and I didn't originate this idea, um, smart analysts who I respect have said that Ramaswamy's boomlet seems to be entirely based on being as ugly as Donald Trump when Donald Trump's not on the stage. You know, he's managed to say lots of ugly things, say weird things about Russia, um, sort of troll Barack Obama, people love it, and Donald Trump wasn't on the stage and he continues to to get some headlines by doing it. It feels like Nikki Haley is probably the one making the most out Substantive, of yeah. coming out of that um, debate. I know this is counterintuitive, but because DeSantis didn't get crushed by everybody else, maybe it's good for him. He can kind of operate below the radar as he seeks to secure or resecure that extremely distant number two position right now. But for Haley, she you saw her shaping um, both abortion messaging and age messaging that and and some 
soft Donald Trump trolling that really is meant to consolidate women's support to the extent if she's she's not going to be embraced by aggressively pro-choice women. But if you're sort of centrist or uh, center right, but a suburban woman, she's going for that vote. And if you want a younger person than Donald Trump, she is courting that vote too. She's been strategic about it. She may also be positioning herself. I mean, I I realize Vice President always comes into this conversation at this point because we're really talking about this contest for second place, you know, Um, because Donald Trump is so far ahead. Nikki Haley's framing of the abortion issue, her plea with her party to moderate itself and moderate its message. I mean, everybody is looking at the same results. Republicans have lost election after election, after referendum, after Supreme Court race, in state after state after state where this issue has come up since the Dobbs decision. Republicans are getting trounced. Nikki Haley understands it. Uh, I think a lot of Republicans understand it, but the right wing of the party is controlling this direction right now. This is her plea. You're going to lose the suburbs. You're going to lose women. Donald Trump possibly being a convicted felon notwithstanding, you will have no chance if you don't moderate on abortion. And it may be her best tacit pitch for being on the ticket. A reminder, we're with Todd Zwillick from Vice News, HuffPost's Arthur Delaney, and Margaret Tollov from Axios. Speaking of the former president, this was another big week in his legal saga. Trump's federal trial over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election is set to start in Washington on March 4th. That's one day before Super Tuesday, when voters in 15 states will head to the polls to vote in the 2024 presidential primaries. Uh, Todd, Aside from whether or not that debate of March, uh, that date of March 4 will actually stand, what are you watching for here? Well, the most important thing here is whether these cases and this one in particular and the Georgia case happened before the election. I say this one in particular because this case that you're talking about, the federal coup case and the Georgia a RICO conspiracy case, both go to the heart of the question. They go to, they go to the heart of Trump and his co-defendants. Uh, attempt to overturn the election and upend democracy. And Judge Chutkin in the federal case made clear in the scheduling hearing that the public has a real stake in the timing of this case. Speedy trial rights, your right to a speedy trial under the Constitution, is a defense right, but it's also a societal right. And we as voters, we as Americans, uh, lovers of the Constitution, also have a stake in knowing who's on the ballot come uh, November 2024? And was it a person who's been rightfully accused and convicted of trying to upend the very system that he's once again running to head? So for me, that's the most important thing about the timing of that case. Like you suggested, we'll see if it sticks. Although Judge Chutkin appears to be very, very serious about not being uh, bullied on the timing of this case by Trump's lawyers or anybody else. But there are always going to be motions. There are going to be trial motions efforts to delay. It's very clear that Donald Trump's entire strategy in all of these cases, any of them that we talk about, is delay, try to get it after the election so that if he did get elected president, he could uh, generate a corrupt pardon for himself. So um, so that's the thing to watch. But the, fa- the fact that the trial date is like one day before a primary election, I, th- I think doesn't really matter just because his legal miasma is so all-encompassing that there won't be any avoiding it if there's not like a trial date the day before. And after. other Right. And other trials are before other mini Tuesdays. And don't forget, there's the Manhattan trial. We have a date for the Mar-a-Lago trial, but that one's probably definitely going to slip. So everything is in the way of something else. Margaret, as we're talking about all of these trials, how much of the outcome, is, at least from a polling standpoint, has had any bearing on his candidacy? 
I mean, look, inside the Republican primary, he's still extremely far ahead of basically all the other candidates added up. So it hasn't hurt him. And you could argue it has helped him, at least like it's helped him right up until the moment when it doesn't help him anymore. The challenge with polls is you can't take a poll that's conducted in August and apply it to what's going to happen in March. We have no idea. But the reality is, I think having a March 4th date set uh, does add an additional spotlight or kind of imperative on those early caucuses and primaries. It makes Iowa extremely important for Trump as a, to try to sew it up. It makes New Hampshire more, maybe more important than it would have been for everyone else to try to, you know, crush him. Um, and it and it is true that every contest that comes after March fourth, um, Donald Trump could be in a courtroom or curtailed from messaging on the campaign, the instructions that he will take into that courtroom with him could hopple his ability to speak as freely as he might want to or kind of, you know, troll the issues on the public stage. So I think it could have an impact when it starts, if it starts in March. And it does come clustered with three, at least three other cases that start around March and run through, start, some of them start around May. So it totally overlaps what in a normal year would be the decision point for a primary, it is possible that that decision point will happen before March 4th. In this case, and a weird side note to me to this is that Trump's fought so hard in 2020 against early voting, absentee voting, all this kind of stuff. In this case, anyone's ability to cast a ballot early before all this starts actually helps him quite a bit. And so I wonder whether we will hear him uh, as we get closer to this double down on the, you know, it's voting anywhere than going to the polling place and voting is bad, or whether he's going to encourage everyone who has the ability to cast an early vote in any capacity to do it. Now, of course, Trump isn't the only one facing legal trouble. On Wednesday, a U.S. judge ruled that former New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani was liable for defamation for falsely accusing two Georgia election workers of tampering with votes during the 2020 presidential election. The decision comes a week after Giuliani turned himself into an Atlanta jail on state criminal charges that he and Trump attempted to overturn the 2020 election. Todd, the judge ruled against Giuliani without a trial. Yeah. Why is that Summary judgment. Because Rudy refused to play by the rules and participate in this trial over and over and over, he was asked for discovery. Discovery is when you say, give us all the relevant documents, emails, text, facts, conversations that you have. Our side will give them to you. That's the discovery phase of a case or a trial. And he was admonished and, in fact, sanctioned once before because he was – saying the dog ate my homework. I can't get at the documents. I don't have the money to pay the firm. Bottom line, um, Judge Beryl Howell eventually sanctioned Rudy Giuliani because he was refusing to hand over discovery. He was continuing to refuse. And finally, Judge Howell said, you know what? You lose. You don't get to keep doing this. You lose this case. Not only are you going to have to pay punitive damages to Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, which will be decided later in a jury trial, so we don't know the amount of damages, you have to pay more sanctions. I can't remember the number, 160000 or 130000 more dollars for Rudy now. So that's why he lost. But what's interesting about this, and you mentioned the Georgia case, some of the same set of facts. Don't forget Rudy in his position – in the alleged conspiracy in Georgia, is also accused for for going after the, for the effort to intimidate Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman. Some of the fact base is the same, and Judge Howell suggested in court, and a lot of other people have noticed this too. 
whatever is in that discovery, mm-hmm. whatever facts, whatever documents, whatever things that Rudy Giuliani absolutely does not want to release here in this defamation case, which is going to cost him dearly millions of dollars that he doesn't have, what's in those facts? They're probably, and Judge, Judge Howell said this, whatever you're hiding has got to be pretty incriminating because you have criminal liability and you don't want to disclose it. We just have a minute before the break, but Margaret, quickly, what insight do you think this decision gives us into how all these other lawsuits might be playing out? I think this question of discovery is going to be hugely important because um, uh, the, uh, the 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 most powerful uh, outcome of trying to allege fraud when there's no factual basis for it, et cetera, et cetera, is in the moment. It's a political outcome, right? And that moment is past. So it's all diminishing returns for all of these defendants in this case to say anything or turn over anything. And I think this is important because it holds uh, Giuliani accountable. In theory, he could have to pay if they can <laughs> make him sell property or whatever it's going to take. But also this could, could discourage others from following suit if he is ultimately held financially accountable. Oh, I, I think it will. I don't think you'll see uh, candidates calling random campaign, uh, you know, poll workers, drug mules or whatever Rudy Giuliani was saying about these women. Yeah. We're going to head to a quick break. Coming up, we get to the latest from the shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, and what's going on with federal protections for the country's wetlands. You're listening to the News Roundup. Back with more in a moment. These days, news comes at you fast. But the truth? Getting there takes time. There's something that hasn't been disclosed yet. Embedded is a podcast that takes the time to look beyond the headlines. How how did this happen? How did we get here? With original documentary storytelling. Listen to NPR's Embedded wherever you get your podcasts. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch, and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR. Let's jump back into the news roundup. In a surprising move on Monday, former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows testified for nearly four hours before a Georgia federal court. Meadows took the stand to say he was just following Trump's orders and helping efforts to overturn the 2020 election, which prosecutors are describing as part of a criminal conspiracy. Todd, taking the stand as a defendant is probably a move his lawyers didn't want to happen. Why would Meadows do this? The experts will tell you the only reason he probably did it was that he couldn't find another witness to – an expert witness to say that what he's arguing was OK. In other words, you might have gotten a White House former ethics counsel or a former White House counsel to say, yes, what Mark Meadows was doing was under his federal duties, not just political, not just trying to overturn an election or talk about votes, which is not part, not part of – a. White House chief of staff's responsibilities, but he couldn't find that person. So the only way to affirmatively make the case, Mark Meadows has to show the court that th- that was the, f- the case to get his case removed to federal court, which is he- what he wants to do. He has to affirmatively show these facts that he was acting under color of federal law. If you can't get anyone else to say it, you have to say it yourself. And that's a huge risk. And by the way, 
that risk reared its head because Mark Meadows said some things that weren't true in that testimony. And it's unclear whether that's going to come back to bite him. He said under oath that he had no role in coordinating what we now know is the fake elector plan. Um, he's all over emails and texts coordinating it. That's simply not true. Whether it rises to the level of perjury, I don't know. Perjury has definitions. But he it shows how testifying, trying to have both sides of the apple here can be very, very dangerous. Um, Arthur, with the idea that Meadows was hoping to get his case moved to federal court, do we know if testifying helped him on this front? I have no idea if that helped. I mean, this is an unprecedented legal situation, isn't it? This is also what what uh, the other other defendants in the case are hoping to do. So he's he's the tip of the spear for that. But it's an unprecedented situation. We're also seeing sentences being still handed down for rioters who stormed the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. On Thursday, a U.S. district judge sentenced Proud Boys leader Joe Biggs to 17 years in a federal prison. Biggs was convicted of seditious conspiracy earlier this year. The government says Biggs, quote, served as an instigator and leader during the attack. Biggs' sentence is among the longest so far in this case, the longest being 18 years. And Todd, we're not finished with these sentences. No, um, Joe Biggs was well-known in Proud Boy Circle as their chief propagandist. You can see videos of him online leading the mob toward the Capitol, carrying a bullhorn, um, bragging after the riot that they stormed the Capitol and celebrating with his buddies. So 17 years for Joe Biggs. Zachary Rell is another Proud Boy who is convicted of seditious conspiracy, spraying cops with I guess, baramace or whatever chemical irritant. Um, The judge said he lied on the stand about his behavior, so add on a perjury enhancement. So he got 15 years. Enrique Terrio is the leader of the Proud Boys. He was supposed to be sentenced this week. It got delayed because of illness in the courtroom. And Terrio's supposed to be sentenced on Tuesday, looking forward right after Labor Day. The government is seeking 32 years for Enrique Terrio. And judging from these other sentences, they're getting about half of their request out of Judge Mehta, um, Judge Amit Mehta, federal judge who's doing this. Government, I think, requested 34 years for Biggs and got 17. So you might say the chances of Tario getting the full 32 are pretty low, but we'll have to see. So a decade in prison for these folks, unless Trump wins and pardons them all, like he said he would do. Which Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, would love. She's been all over social media, and she's not the only one saying these people who stormed the Capitol, who orchestrated and have been convicted of seditious conspiracy, are the ones who've been persecuted, and it should be hands off the Proud Boys. She says, leave them alone. The Department of Justice is investigating a weekend shooting in Jacksonville, Florida, as a hate crime. On Saturday, a 21-year-old white man shot and killed three people at a Dollar General before fatally shooting himself. 52-year-old Angela Carr, 29-year-old A.J. Laguerre, and 19-year-old Gerald Galleon died. All three victims were black. Investigators found more than 20 pages of racist writings on the gunman's laptop, and swastikas were on the rifle used in the attack. Margaret, the gunman in Jacksonville had been involuntarily held for a psychiatric evaluation in Florida in 2017 when he was 15. His father mentioned in a 911 call the day of the killing that his son was receiving psychiatric help. Do we know how he was able to purchase a gun? Uh, the authorities say legally. He yeah. purchased a gun legally. And you're right. There are a couple of sort of mental health flags, the sort of thing that are intended to, to trip up the system, to to throw up a red flag. Uh, we know that he had some kind of a domestic incident with a relative, his brother, I think, um, maybe seven years ago. And uh, back in 2017, he was 
uh, for a time put in custody under what in under Florida law is known as the Baker Act. And this is something um, where you are involuntary. Yes, you can be held for a mental health evaluation. So uh, in the immediate aftermath, what the authorities were trying to figure out is, was the Baker Act not recorded correctly or or was he uh, sort of reviewed and then never kind of whatever being fully Baker Acted means? So, But the bottom line is that in a best case scenario, uh, the law sets up these kind of conflicting priorities, your rights under uh, the Second Amendment, right? your right to bear arms or purchase arms uh, versus kind of um, the public's life, public's right to safety and protection. And in in the balance of the current equation, the law or the system set up to to maintain those balances of law favor the individual's right to, to purchase guns. And so I think this is going to cause some internal review, but particularly like there are some states where gun rights are stronger than other states, and Florida is one of those states. According to the latest FBI report, 2021 hate crimes were at the highest level since the government started tracking them in the 90s. In May of last year, a white gunman killed 10 black people at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Several other communities, from Pittsburgh to El Paso, have been affected by hate-motivated attacks in recent years. Todd, as we're seeing these crime levels tick up, what are we hearing from the government yeah, about what's being done to stop this these This is precisely – I'm glad you brought up those other attacks. Um, Juliet Kayyem, uh, who is a former DHS official, she's on CNN quite a lot as an analyst, wrote something very important in The Atlantic about – yes, we talk about access to guns, uh, easy access to guns and, and public shootings and mass shootings and they're horrific. Her point about – this attack in context of the others that you mentioned, these gunmen are advertising their attacks. They are part of basically a show of violence. This gunman had swastikas drawn on his weapon. He wanted his manifestos released. He wanted his homophobic and racist and anti-Semitic thoughts out there. He wanted a show of his death. He wanted the swastika scene. And that's very similar to what um, these other shooters in Christchurch and El Paso and Buffalo and Pittsburgh also did. They are online. They are in community. They are celebrating their form of jihadism, comparing it directly to ISIS and the Taliban and the and the the beauty and the effort of radical religious based murderers on on uh, that side of the conflict. They they emulate it. They talk about it, and they want to reproduce it. And Juliet is making the point that as we kind of get into this sick and grim pattern of talking about gun access and how easily people like this racist were able to buy high-powered weapons and hurt people, we have to pay more attention to the pattern and the franchise that this community of violent racists is, uh, is fomenting online and actualizing in the real world. Now on to another community reeling from gun violence this week. The University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, is mourning the loss of Professor Zuzi Yan, who was shot in the Applied Physical Sciences Department. I'm sorry, and that's where he taught. He was killed in a classroom building on Monday afternoon. A University of North Carolina graduate student has been charged with the murder. Arthur, do we know anything more about a motive in this case? I don't think we do, except that the student shot his faculty advisor, and it wasn't like an active shooter situation or a scene like the ones that Todd was describing. But it was, uh, I, I think, the 42nd school shooting so far this year. Most of them have happened at K-12 schools. This one was at a college. 
And the UNC paper, the Daily Tar Heel, published a front page that went viral this week. The entire front page was simply a transcription of text messages sent between students and loved ones during the three-hour lockdown on campus on Monday. Those text messages are messages that anybody who has lived through an active shooter situation that they've received. And so in a way, yes, this is a cover that is so personal to UNC students, but it's also a cover that way too many people across the nation can connect with. That was Daily Tar Heel Editor-in-Chief Emmy Martin speaking with PBS NewsHour. Margaret, I started reading this, and honestly, it was so hard to get through. What was your reaction when you saw this front page? Yeah, anyone who hasn't seen this yet should just Google it, sit down, and burst into tears. But um, because they're real texts, and the newspaper editor has said in interviews since, uh, like, had it? You just got to school. How were you in the presence of mind to think about this cover? That as the text started pouring in to the newspaper staff and to friends, they realized that those text messages of care and concern captured the absolute emotions that you go through. And I think, you know, um, this is now. I have a 19-year-old daughter. She is away at college. This is now part of the cultural experience of being a student at a high school or at a college. Is being prepared for when the lunatic shows up in the classroom. Do you run? Do you fight? Do you text? Do you remember to turn your volume off? And so to see these uh, messages in real time from among students and from the outside come in and say, are you okay? Run. It, it captures in a way like the bloodstream of literally in real time what you go through when something like this happens. I think it's something that um, students of a certain age can all relate to because it reflects either what they have lived through or what they are preparing for the possibility of living through. And for those of us who are a little bit older, who have the school days in the rearview mirror, it helps us to understand the mentality of a student today versus the mentality of a student 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, it's a powerful um, piece of journalism. So you shouldn't look at it. This week, the EPA did away with federal protections for the country's wetlands in order to comply with a recent Supreme Court decision. Todd, what was the Supreme Court decision behind this regulation change? The the, the court uh, last spring, been fighting over the Clean Water Act and, and wetlands for many, many, many years, and alternate Republican and Democratic administrations through regulation have have had different approaches to this. Democrats, as you might suspect, have wanted stricter regulation over what what construction you can do near wetlands, what chemicals can be dumped, and the rules that govern pollution around wetlands, and Republicans have, have peeled back those regulations at turn. The Supreme Court dropped in and said, oh, no, 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 guess what? We're going to solve this permanently and say the EPA basically doesn't have as much jurisdiction as you thought. And this is part of a larger trend with this conservative Supreme Court. Um, it's, it's complicated, and I confess I don't fully understand the regulation of wetlands, but I can say one thing that the crux of this is they basically said, if the stream or the, the rivulet or the brook isn't conti- contiguously connected to an ocean or a lake, then EPA, you can't regulate it. In other words, groundwater doesn't count, even though all of our drinking water and all wetland water, experts will tell you, is connected one way or the other. So is the ecosystem. They said the rule is um, if it's not continu- contiguously connected to an ocean or a major river, it doesn't count. 
now some lawyer is pulling their hair out over my laymanish explanation, but that is the crux of it. When I say this is part of a larger trend, this same court also took a major shot at the Clean Air Act and told the EPA a year or two ago, you can't limit greenhouse gases the way you thought you could. We are limiting the power of the regulatory state here um, to help prevent pollution, help prevent greenhouse gases. Basically, Congress has to expressly say, this is your job. We can't have regulatory agencies that look out for clean air and clean water in the way we thought the EPA was founded to do. Let's move on to our final topic, to raise interest rates or not. That is the question. On Thursday, Atlanta Federal Reserve Bank President Rafael Bostic laid out the case why the U.S. shouldn't impose further interest rate hikes. Bostic's comments come a week after Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the strength of the U.S. economy could require new hikes to curb inflation. As is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. In such circumstances, risk management considerations are critical. At upcoming meetings, we will assess our progress based on the totality of the data and the evolving outlook and risks. That's Powell at the Jackson Hole Economic Symposium last Friday. Margaret, uh, the Fed is going to do what the Fed is going to do. But when we think about how much Americans think about who has control over the economy, people tend to think it's the president. Yes. So how successful, <laughs> let's end on politics here, how successful has the president been at selling the success of, quote, Bidenomics to voters? Yeah, I don't think it's really caught fire yet uh, on the on the sort of ultimate downstream. I mean, look, um, you, you'll remember Morgan Stanley uh, recently said that it um, thought it could boost the forecast for economic uh, growth for later this year. Biden and the White House are going to try to take victory laps on any sign like that and say, look, Biden's economic policies are working. I think that uh, Team Biden has decided a couple things. Number one, they're going to get hammered on the economy, whether they try to go on offense or whether they have to play defense. So it makes more sense to go on the offense. And number two, that they had some lead time to road test whatever they want to say Biden Bidenomics is. And so far, their most successful uh, method has been talking about infrastructure and construction projects and, and real-world implications that people can visualize. You can talk about inflation slowing down all you want to, but when milk and the grocery bills and all that stuff, gas costs a lot more than it used to and the prices are never coming down, people do not care what the economic version of that is. It's a challenge for him, but he has some strings to hold on to, and he's trying his best to shape that message. Before we wrap, from Bidenomics to Beyonce-nomics, Beyonce isn't a novice at breaking records. So let's add one more to the list before we go. According to Billboard magazine, Beyonce's Renaissance Tour brought in $127.6 million in July. That figure is the largest one-month total for any artist since record-keeping began in the 1980s, with two more months to go for the tour. Billboard anticipates that Beyonce's total will surpass the half-billion-dollar mark. Category Bay. My thanks this week go to Margaret Tolliv, Axios Senior Contributor and Director of Syracuse University's Institute for Democracy, Journalism, and Citizenship, Arthur Delaney, reporter at HuffPost, and Todd Zwillig, Deputy DC Bureau Chief at Vice News and author of the Breaking the Vote newsletter on Democracy and Indictments. 
You're listening to the News Roundup coming up on the global edition of the Roundup. The United States is urging U.S. citizens to flee Haiti as gang violence rises. Military intervention in Haiti is back on the table. Could it be the solution to the country's ongoing crisis? Plus, historic protests continue in Syria. A sexual assault investigation rocks Spanish football. And the world prepares for next week's G20 summit. We'll get into all of that and more after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. Okay, close your eyes for a second. Now imagine you're on your dream vacation. No work calls to answer, no text messages to respond to, just your suitcase and an opportunity. The opportunity to just take yourself out of your routine and travel deeper. How to actually take that dream trip. That's on the Life Kit Podcast from NPR. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Another packed week of headlines from around the world, including another coup on the African continent, more questions than clarity around the death of Wagner's Yevgeny Prigozhin, protests in Syria, and a new record for the world's most expensive cheese. Yes, I said that, cheese. All that and so much more with our panel of experts today. From London, Kriti Gupta is an anchor and correspondent at Bloomberg TV and Radio. Also with us is Uri Friedman. Uri is the senior editorial director at the Atlantic Council and a contributing writer at the Atlantic Magazine, where he writes a regular column on international affairs. And Jack Detch is a Pentagon and national security reporter at Foreign Policy. Thanks, you all, for joining us today. Let's start in the Central African nation of Gabon on Wednesday. Today, the 30th of August, 2023, in the name of the Gabonese people, we, the Committee of the Transition and the Restoration of Institutions, have decided to defend the peace, putting an end to the regime in place. To this end, the general elections of August 26, 2023, as well as the results, are cancelled. The borders of the country are closed until further notice. All the institutions of the Republic are dissolved. The government, the Senate, the National Assembly, the Constitutional Court. We call on the population for calm and serenity. It's a group of soldiers declaring a coup on state television in Gabon, saying they've seized power from a president whose family has ruled the oil-rich Central African nation for decades. Jack, what's known about these soldiers who seized power? Nyla, they're, red, they're led by a man named Bryson Gama, who's had a love-hate relationship with, with the ruling Bongo family for, for a couple of decades now. He's, he's been on the outside in, in a country where, where proximity really is power. The Bongo family has ruled the country for almost seven decades since decolonization. And like most of the military, Nagema and, and the top brass that are leading this coup came up in the Gabonese Republican Guard, sort of like a, a Praetorian Guard for the president and forge close ties with Omar Bongo, who's, who's the father of Ali Bongo, who was deposed this week. Uh, when Omar died in 2019, Nagema was sort of sent into the wilderness. He was sent to serve as a defense attache in Morocco and Senegal. 
and spent almost a decade out, out of the country before returning and rising back up the ranks of that Praetorian Guard to intelligence chief. He's really seen as somewhat of a yes man. Eight months ago, he was praising Ali Bongo, even as as the regime got much less stable, even as there were calls of election irregularity. And diplomats I talked to this week don't see much changing with with the military coming in. He's talking about turning the page uh, in Gema is, but uh, that's not what what most experts and officials see right now uh, potentially happening in Gabon. Right. And this military junta made the announcement hours after uh, President Bongo won re-election for a third term in a vote that was criticized by international observers. Kriti, can you explain a little bit more about not just that criticism, but the timing of all of this of this coup? Yeah, I think the way to kind of think about specifically his his time in office has been in two different lights. One is the domestic view and one is the the foreign view. And I'll start with the domestic here because, look, he he has won three elections. He came to power in 2009, but did it, at least the allegations are, through fraud, through corruption. And those were allegations that were put on uh, his father, his predecessor as well. It's also important to keep in mind, I think this uh, stat really stood out to me here, is that in his three elections that he's had – all three were contested. Uh, so you did see that a lot of people came out and protested it. They said that, look, this is not how you actually win a real election, especially given that he had some pretty high-ranking roles under his father's time as well. I believe he was a foreign minister at one point. He was a diplomat to, to a bunch of different countries. So to win on those allegations of election fraud is certainly uh, creating some some poor sentiment there. From an international perspective, he has a very different reputation in that he is big on climate specifically because if you look at Gabon's uh, kind of industry, they're a minor oil producer with OPEC, but they also have a major timber industry and forestation and deforestation has been something that's been kind of on his agenda for a while. So when you look at the way he's worked with a lot of the more developed nations like the UK, like the US, for example, he was invited to Buckingham Palace with Prince Charles and congratulated on his efforts that he to kind of really conserve the climate and specifically the the forests in Gabon itself. So internationally, he's actually seen as as a real player, but within the country, not so much. Right. And what what else do we think about? How would you characterize him as a leader and his rule in terms of how popular he's been? Well, look, he has been popular in the region. If you actually look at the kind of rates of literacy, for example, or the partnership with France, he has actually improved them in his time in office. So that has been popular. But then again, you look at his election results and and not so much there. So although the stats are, I would say, fairly impressive for a leader in his region, uh, from a kind of ruling perspective, uh, he definitely does not have kind of the population on his side. Gabon's coup is the eighth to occur in West and Central Africa since 2020, and it comes about a month after a military junta in Niger ousted the nation's democratically elected government. Niger is also a former French colony. Here is one person celebrating on the streets of Libreville after the soldiers claim power. We are so happy. There is a sense of joy. We are waiting for this moment for so long. We suffered so much. Uri, as we're thinking about the broader context here, is it fair to say there's a re- wider revolt underway against France's influence in neocolonialism in Africa? Well, eight coups um, just in the past few years it certainly looks like a pattern. But I caution, it, it's a nuanced general pattern and not a um, specific contagion. For example, I would say Gabon is a little more similar 
to a coup that happened in Guinea in 2021, where um, the president in Guinea tried to make a third term through constitutional reform. It was it was the response was a coup. There was a lot of popular discontent about it. So that was more about political, you know, political power and and the struggle over it in countries like Burkina Faso, Niger, which just had a coup, Mali. Um, that's been more about responses to jihadist violence there. Um, and then you have coups in countries like Sudan, where it's more about the military trying to assert control um, in a country racked by kind of political instability and political conflict. So there's there's nuances across these coups, even geographically. You look at the coups that have happened, it's, it's you have to really look at it in a map to see, you know, there's a coup belt kind of across the Sahel where all these coups have happened, and then Gabon is geographically located in a different place. The, the common thread... There is definitely democratic backsliding um, in all of, of these countries in the region as a whole, and that has a lot of consequences for the future of politics in Africa. Also, I was really struck by one stat to your point. 16 of the 24 successful coups um, in Africa since 2000 have been in Francophone countries. Seven of eight in the last, uh, just since 2020, have been in Francophone countries. Gabon is a former French colony, to your point. In Gabon, the anti-French sentiment so far, it's early days, has been less pronounced than in countries like Mali, where after the coup, they kicked out the, the considerable French presence in Niger. I mean, it was very vivid. They actually went into a stadium, painted a chicken in French colors and beheaded the chicken to cheers. Um, this is This has been, you know, really evident in some of these other coups, not so much in Gabon. But what I would say is if you're in Paris right now, um, you have to be thinking do we need a big rethink of, of French policy toward Africa? You also have to be thinking about what is the future of French influence in the region if, you know, for example, in Gabon, France has a military base like it did in Niger, like it did in Mali. And so, uh, you know, France has all these former colonies there where they have been pretty involved even through, you know, currency, where the, the currency is kind of pegged in part to the euro, and that's been a source of discontent Um in, in these African countries as a, a feeling of continued French presence there. So I think I think no matter what, um, there is going to have to be a lot of thinking about French policy toward Africa going forward with all of these coups in the same place. It, it, is, it is an undeniable trend that we're seeing. Let's talk about the African Union's influence in all of this. On Thursday, the African Union suspended Gabon's membership and president of the West, Africans, West Africa's main regional group, ECOWAS, expressed concern about more copycat Coups. Kriti, how valid is that? Well, I think the concern and kind of where they're getting that from is simply that they had this kind of domino effect that they saw in the Arab Spring a, a couple years back as well. So they're kind of expecting that perhaps you might see something similar. Uh, and, and to, to, um, Yuri's point there, this is the ninth coup in Africa in the last three years. So so there is, I think, a fair base to say that this could be some sort of a domino effect. But then again, if you look at just how specific these issues are to each and every nation, I'm going to just echo kind of Yuri's point there. There aren't really that common thread yet, unless you look at things like uh, food inflation, for example, which really is becoming a, a global issue. So as far as this warning goes, it's more of a look at what the regional ripple effects are around the region. But it's not necessarily the same as the kind of contagion you've seen in prior iterations of this. Right. And as we've spoken about before on 1A, ECOWAS threatened military intervention in Niger after the coup and imposed sanctions. The junta has not backed down uh, military leaders in Mali, Guinea, Burkina Faso have also resisted international pressure to restore civilian rule. How much do these coups show the limited leverage of African leadership once the military takes over, Uri? 
I think there is a real concern about that. And ECOWAS, you know, has to feel right now they did not go through their military intervention. Are their threats ringing hollow? That's a big question for them. And you think about it more broadly. Yes, it's not like everyone's taking exactly the same coup playbook and and dusting it off and, and using it themselves. But if you're a you know, it's, uh, a military leader who's unhappy with political leadership in a country in Africa, and you're seeing that there's a lack of consequences when these coups happen, you know, just like any bad act, if you, if you know, bad actors see a lack of consequences, you think, okay, maybe I can get away with this. And there is, there are lessons learned from that. So I think that's a big concern for all these regional groups. Let's head to St. Petersburg, Russia, where a small and secret burial was held for, was held for Wagner chief Yevgeny Prigozhin. The mercenary leader was killed in a plane crash last week with other top Wagner officials, and the crash occurred exactly two months after Prigozhin launched a mutiny against Russia's military leadership. The funeral was privately held with family and friends and without the press. Kriti, there were even reports of diversions at other local cemeteries to confuse the public. Why was there such an effort into keeping this burial a secret? Well, look, at the end of the day, this was a, a mutiny on, on Prigozhin's part and, and something that was called uh, treacherous and, and a betrayal to, to the country of, of Russia. So naturally, the government of Russia and Putin himself didn't really want to bring attention to it for uh, for fear, perhaps, of, of any sort of leftover sentiment that might kind of sympathize with Prigozhin. But to your point, yeah, absolutely, there were some uh, really interesting diversions. I think there were reports at four different cemeteries of where it was actually going to happen, kind of uh, sending the press on the ground running around until I think that fifth cemetery, which was actually closed to the public, is where it ended up happening. Um, what's interesting is that even though there was no announcement, there were no military honors, there was a lot of security. And I think that was really telling about just how much kind of attention really was kind of pushed away from from this very, very private funeral. On Wednesday, the Kremlin said the plane may have been downed on purpose. The Kremlin has also denied any involvement in the crash. Jack, what are we hearing? How vocal have Russian leaders been about Prigozhin's death? There's there's not much out in the public light right now. As you said, Nyla, the, the Kremlin has not ruled out foul play, uh, but they've denied, of course, that they were involved uh, in actually downing the Embraer jet. Uh, Dmitry Peskov, the Kremlin spokesman, laughed off any suggestions. It, it could have been ordered from inside the Kremlin. But you also see a, a more deliberate effort from the Kremlin to, to stonewall investigations. Uh, they, they've basically said they're not going to allow the UN-backed International Civil Aviation Organization uh, to investigate until the Russian investigation's wrapped up. Uh, and even sort of the Soviet bloc era uh, aviation organization uh, is not doing an investigation right now. Uh, of course, U.S. intelligence assessments that, that we've seen aired out in the public uh, seem to indicate this was an explosion. This, this was very clearly linked up to the top of the Kremlin, uh, but we're still seeing denial after denial uh, from in Moscow. Reuters was the first to report that Russia will not investigate the crash under an international probe, quote, at the moment. That was revealed by Brazil's Aviation Safety Authority, and Brazil is involved because the jet was made there. U.S. intelligence has also launched an investigation. Uh, And we just got this email from Woodrow. Russia now admits that the Wagner flight may have been brought down by foul play and at the same time says a normal investigation is not possible. They're getting set to blame Ukraine. You can set your watch to it. Uri, what do you think about that? 
That's interesting. And that was a concern when this initially happened, that they would blame Ukraine. I haven't seen that line of rhetoric um, from the Russians yet, but it's certainly possible. And one thing I would say to, to Jack's point, too, about how they've been describing this, you know, there's a great um, uh, Russia observer, Peter Pomerantsev, who has a book called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible about Russia. And this is kind of the approach they've taken with Prigozhin. What they've certainly said is true is that Prigozhin has died. That's been consistent across Russian state media, Russian authorities. But they've, the, the, you know, in the ways they've talked about this, the limited ways, they're basically airing it and everything is possible in terms of what happened. You know, there have been hints that, yeah, maybe we, we were involved, very implicit hints, um, but also kind of more explicit uh, efforts to say, uh, you know, n- no, we're not. Um, this could have been foul play. It could have been an accident. We're investigating. So they're kind of leaving... A, a lot up to kind of let, leave, keep people guessing, um, which is pretty consistent with how they often do kind of their propaganda operations. Thanks for that comment, uh, Woodrow. You can also chime in by emailing us 1A at WAMU.org. Meanwhile, speaking of Ukraine, the White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby warned of North Korea and Russian advancing and North Korea and Russia advancing talks on supplying weapons for the war in Ukraine. We do believe that North Korea is uh, covertly supplying Russia with uh, a significant number of artillery shells. Now, I've also said uh, that we don't believe, uh, first of all, we're we're monitoring to see if they actually get delivered. We think they're going to covertly uh, funnel these through third-party nations to try to hide the fact that it's actually going to Russia for use in Ukraine. We don't know if they're actually received yet. We don't believe... Uh, given what we know, that it's going to make a, a huge change on the battlefield in terms of uh, the ability of the Russians to turn things around for them in the east and in the south. Jack, what else did we learn about this potential North Korea-Russian relationship or possible arms deal here? So it looks like what's likely to be on the way from North Korea to Russia uh, through those third parties that, that John Kirby mentioned is is more firepower, more artillery ammunition. And and artillery, of course, is, is the name of the game in Ukraine. Uh, we've seen both sides burning through uh, arsenals on, on the Russian side uh, and in the West. Uh, much more need to manufacture that, even on the Russian side. Sergei Shoigu apparently traveling to, to North Korea recently to try and procure that ammunition uh, and letters even exchanged all the way up between Putin and Kim Jong-un. So these are very high-level talks that are going on. And it goes to show that as this war has, has expanded, as the timeline has drawn out, more countries are being drawn in from the Indo-Pacific. We've seen North Korea, of course, come in on the side of the Russians. We've seen South Korea now agreeing to send more artillery, $400 million worth next year uh, for military assistance to the Ukrainians. So even as public appetite is not so whetted anymore uh, for U.S. military aid to Ukraine uh, in the Indo-Pacific, it's a different story. And Ukraine's counteroffensive does continue to slog on. Ukrainian forces advanced on Russia's first line of defense on the southern front. This happened as Russian forces pushed back in the northeast. Kriti, what's the latest on the warfighting efforts on the ground? Yeah, so they are making a lot of progress, uh, to your point, on the south, but also um, in, in the eastern fronts. Remember, they're getting closer and closer to the Donbass region, which is kind of a Russian-controlled, uh, four regions that are Russian-controlled. They actually have elections coming up uh, next week in that part of the, of the country. The south is really interesting, though, and I, I think I want to put an extra emphasis on that because the closer you get to the south, the closer you get to the Black Sea. And I think one of the most fascinating pieces of this kind of counteroffensive is how it's affected how they're defending the ports. 
So the ports in Odessa, in Kherson, uh, even in Mariupol, arguably, if you want to get close enough there. But a, a lot of this has really international ramifications because as you get closer and closer to the south, you start to see a lot of the Ukrainian export operations when it comes to things like grain that are really exported to the entire world really come under attack. And this is, of course, extra important because now you have the uh, the grain deal that was negotiated between Russia and, and Ukraine no longer in existence. I believe on Monday, you are now expected to have uh, Turkey's uh, President Erdogan go and try to renegotiate that deal. But right now, that southern front is so important because a lot of the grain exports coming out of the Black Sea from Ukraine are actually under attack. So to make some more progress on that front is really crucial. What's interesting is you also at the same time see uh, Russian uh, the Russian forces and then President Putin himself talk about uh, reactivating their intercontinental uh, missile system. So essentially their nuclear missiles, I believe it's called Satan 2, which is uh, a little bit of a, a scary term there. But that's kind of tells you just how much the conflict is ramping up. Right. We're also seeing the war continue in the sky as both sides launch drone attacks this week. Ukraine launched launched the biggest drone assault since the start of the war. A Russian military airbase along with six regions in Russia were hit. Russia claims it thwarted almost all the attacks. Around the same time, though, Russia launched a large drone attack on Kyiv. Ori, how much damage are we seeing from drones this week? And how important is this going to continue to be? Yeah, we are seeing damage. I mean, there were a couple of people killed in the, in, in the Kyiv attack. Um, it, you know, drones sometimes have limited damage relative to missile strikes and those kinds of things, but there, there's certainly damage to infrastructure, to, civi- uh, to civilian lives, etc. Um, the air war is intensifying. As Kreethi mentioned, there are advances on the battleground, but they're still slow and it's a slog. And so you're seeing kind of displacement of the struggle from the ground, where it's certainly intense, to the air, um, through drones, and also, you know, even in the diplomatic arena. We're going to remember this war, we look back on it, it's the first drone war on a really large scale. There's going to be a ton of lessons we learned from how this was conducted on both sides. Let's move now to Sudan, which has seen fighting between its army and the RSF, a paramilitary group since April. Over the weekend, the head of the RSF released a 10-point peace plan. Many Sudanese activists have dismissed the plan, calling it a mockery of the country's pro-democracy movement. Earlier this week, Sudan's army chief, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, accused the RSF of committing war crimes. He's saying this war was carried out by a group that wanted to seize power, and for that, it carried out every other heinous crime that could be imagined. The crimes that are happening now in Sudan include the displacement of citizens, the seizure of their property from looting, theft, killing everywhere. Jack, what other issues do Sudanese activists have with this proposed peace plan? Well, they've basically balled it up and, and thrown it into the trash. I mean, everything that, that Hamedi, the, the leader of the Rapid Support Forces, which have, have gotten backing from the, uh, the United Arab Emirates and, and the Russians over the years, uh, has called for in this plan is, is basically people, uh, what, what activists are accusing him of violating. Uh, you see calls for federalism, social justice, and a unified army, even as Hamedi and, and of course, Burhan have, have split and basically played this game of, of rock'em, sock'em robots for the last three, four months uh, for control of the country and, and really shunted aside any constitutional authority. So uh, it, it seems like this is not a, a proposal that's going to do much to, to actually forward the, the peace process. And, and when you talk to U.S. officials, you talk to congressional aides, what they're really looking for is, is one side either getting 
the upper hand on the battlefield or one side falling away. And, and we still haven't seen that despite uh, the intense fighting over Khartoum. And now, of course, that fighting spreading it into Darfur as the rapid support forces, uh, which were sort of birthed out of that region, uh, have begun to spread and, and, and further the conflict. So it doesn't seem like something that, that's going to be a speed bump or a stop sign or any sort of pause in the fighting here. Right. On Tuesday, authorities say 39 civilians were killed, most of them women and children, after fighting between the army and paramilitary forces reached their homes in Niala, um, located in South Darfur. On Tuesday also, we saw Sudan's army chief visiting Egypt to reopen peace talks with Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi. Kriti, what do you make of that trip? Well, this is a, a longstanding relationship between Egypt and, and Sudan specifically. It, it's actually kind of viewed, at least from the outside, as quite strategic on, uh, on on the Sudan kind of military side because it's not just the army chief. He's taking his top generals with him. He's taking the top uh, defense manufacturer, I believe, in Sudan with him as well. It feels like the bigger focus here is now on kind of the political or the diplomatic efforts because right after speaking to Egypt, which, by the way, I should mention, has been asking for a ceasefire with the RSF and has been, uh, as, as you guys just kind of walked through, been trying to to have some sort of uh, deal brokered there. Well, the next stop after this trip is expected to be Saudi Arabia. And if you put that into context with kind of what the Egyptian uh, efforts have looked like, well, Saudi Arabia and the U.S. have also tried to broker peace deals between the Sudanese military and the RSF as well. They've fallen apart. They've kind of been viewed as half measures. But at the end of the day, it feels like this kind of international diplomatic effort is meant to perhaps bring some of those foreign powers more into the conversation. Yeah. And, and one other um, point I'd, I'd mentioned on this is, you know, there's there's a lot. You mentioned the violence in Darfur um, and it is uh, it is history not exactly repeating itself, but really seeming to rhyme in very chilling ways. Um, you know, there are it seems that there have been a lot of attacks again against um, non-Arab tribal groups there. Um, dozens killed just as uh, General Burhan was going to Egypt to meet with Sisi. Um and, you know, this was where this was the site, if uh, people remember, in 2003-2004 of a genocide by the Janjaweed uh, paramilitary group against um, non-Arab tribal groups there. Uh, the Masalit tribal group seems to be in the crosshairs again this time around. Uh, there are some differences. Um, one, the... John Jaweed is now the rapid support force, which is one of the rival factions in, in this in this civil war. Uh, two, there's more of a fog of war this time around. We know less. If you, there were lots of efforts to document what was happening and the atrocities on the ground that are not happening right now. So there, there's a less of a sense of who's doing what and who's being affected. Um, and the other big absence is, you know, the, the international community really had to mobilize to stop that uh, genocide. And right now we're not seeing the same kind of international action. The effort to go to Egypt, you know, is an effort to get um, a diplomatic effort started, I suppose. But we're not seeing U.N. Security Council resolutions condemning the violence. We're not seeing signs of a multinational or U.N. peacekeeping force or intervention. Sanctions haven't been ramped up. Um, the International Criminal Court has opened an investigation, but it's, it's not really um, in full gear right now. And so there, there is a concern that this is happening. We know less about it, uh, and we're not doing as much about it. Let's talk about international intervention when it comes to Haiti. Gangs in Haiti control many parts of the country and have been fighting for territory and resources since the 2020 assassination of President Juvenel Moise. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres called for global support to Haiti during his first visit to the country last month. 
We discussed uh, and uh, we are in full agreement about the need for uh, the international community through the Security Council and through a number of countries that will provide the necessary forces for the international community to come in support to the police, the Asian police, not only in training and equipment, but also with the, the presence of a security force able to dismantle the activity of the gangs. American nationals are being urged to leave Haiti immediately. That's according to the U.S. Embassy, which issued a travel advisory this week, warning of security and infrastructure challenges in the country. The U.N. has said there's over 5.2 million people in Haiti in need of humanitarian aid. That's nearly half the population. Jack, how is instability in Haiti affecting citizens in Haiti? Well, I think you said it, Nyla. I mean, the the capital, Port-au-Prince, is is 80% controlled by gangs, uh, and the humanitarian situation has just gotten worse and worse. You've seen 300 cases of violent incidents in, in the first six months of, of 2023, uh, a growing trend of kidnappings and abductions noted by the United Nations. So it's basically gang law with checkpoints running the show. So if you're stopped at the wrong checkpoint uh, or, or somebody comes into your house, somebody uh, takes control, you, you can be in serious trouble. And, and that's the concern from the international community. Uh, now, of course, we've seen the, the prospect of, of Kenya potentially stepping in uh, to run a, a UN peacekeeping mission uh, or to run their own peacekeeping mission. Uh, Kenyan observers actually showed up in Haiti uh, last month. So that could be something that's on the horizon, but um, certainly a, a situation that continues to deteriorate uh, on the Caribbean island. Jack, when we're talking about the idea of foreign forces and intervening in Haiti, of course, there's a dark history of that. There were hundreds of reports of sexual abuse of Haitian women and girls by U.N. peacekeepers. After the 2010 earthquake, U.N. soldiers brought cholera to the country, a disease that had previously never been reported in Haiti. In January of this year, the CDC reported 20,000 cases of cholera in Port-au-Prince. How are all of these risks being weighed as the international community considers intervention in Haiti again? Very, very seriously. I mean, Haiti's interim prime minister has has called for for the international force to to be specialized, uh, to be potentially limited uh, to to deal with those concerns. And when you talk about Kenya, that's that's a country where you have a, a lot of history of police brutality. Uh, so there are concerns that if Kenya steps in, uh, this might be something that that actually does take place in in Haiti as it sort of tries to crack down on the gang violence that that's going on there, but. There are going to be a lot of questions just about how this is scoped, who's involved, and the challenge is, too, uh, the United States really hasn't stepped up to lead the mission, doesn't want to lead a mission, uh, and so you, you have to get sort of second best, uh, another ally. Uh, that appears to be the Kenyans, but you could run into, again, these problems of just a lesser trained, uh, a lesser schooled police force uh, coming in and, and having these these problems of, of police brutality uh, and, and all of these other crimes that have popped up in the past. Let's move on to another topic. In Johannesburg, South Africa this week, at least 74 people were killed and 50 injured when a fire ripped through an abandoned building in the central business district. For context, that's more fatalities than in the Grenfell Tower tragedy in London in 2017. A Joburg City official says 200 families 
the 200 families affected were living in the five-story structure without running water or legal or legal electricity. There are approximately 700 abandoned buildings in the city. Johannesburg is the wealthiest city in Africa. South Africa's President Cyril Ramaphosa said the fires, quote, a wake-up call to address a housing shortage. It's believed about 15,000 people are unhoused in the city. Now to Syria. The Syrian people have been living in a war zone for more than 12 years. since after President Bashar al-Assad crushed pro-democracy demonstrations in 2011. More than 300,000 civilians have been killed. And now rare and escalating protests against the regime are entering a second week. Those taking to the streets are continuing to call for Assad's removal. And the demonstrations come at a time of instability within the Syrian economy. 90 percent of Syrians are living below the poverty line. 70 percent are in need of humanitarian aid, according to the UN. Kriti, we haven't seen protests to this scale. Is the economic situation what triggered it? It absolutely is, specifically a decision around fuel subsidies that came out uh, from the government. Uh, look, this I'm going to put some numbers on it because these numbers are truly staggering. And, and keep in mind that this is coming at a time when the Syrian pound has just weakened so incredibly. I mean, the hyperinflation there really makes affordability a key issue in Syria right now. Add on these fuel subsidies, by the way, which are basically removed by the government. I mean, the price of petrol, for example, expected to rise to 8,000 Syrian pounds per liter, up from about 3,000 pounds. So more than double, almost triple what it used to be. Fuel oil specifically to about 2,000 Syrian pounds per liter from about 700 pounds. So again, almost a tripling of, of what they cost before. And, and again, this speaks to a time when you are seeing 90% of the population below the poverty line. Now, it did come with a caveat that they're going to be doubling government salaries. So if you work for the government, you are actually getting a, a little bit more money. But the question is how much of the population is actually working for the government. So again, it really comes down to inflation at a, at a time when the minorities, by the way, are, are getting hit the most just as a function of kind of their economic circumstances. Right. Protests in Syria started in the southern part of the country, home to the Druze, a religious minority. Uri, what do we know about the relationship between the Druze and the Syrian government? So um, one of the reasons this is so surprising is that the Druze have have largely been neutral during uh, the civil war. You know, a lot of the minority groups um, in Syria ha- had been more neutral. And so the fact that they are protesting has been really remarkable. It shows a level of, you know, the, the narrative that the Assad government has made, which is that, the, you know, the minorities are all su- in, in Syria are all supportive of us, isn't ringing true. And you've even seen some criticism come from uh, the Alawite minority, which is uh, what Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian president, belongs to. And just more broadly, you know, Krithi's numbers really paint a vivid picture of the economic situation. I've also just been struck, like, the fact that people are out, hundreds of people, maybe more, are out protesting when they know what happened to protesters, you know, dating all the way back to 2011, the ruthlessness with which the Assad government cracked down, the civil war that followed, you know, it's almost, it, it, almost, it speaks to the desperation even more that you would go out on the streets when you know how dark this has gotten when people have tried to protest before. And it speaks to just a level of desperation economically that is really pronounced. And, and you know, that, that, is, that is why people are watching the, um, um, you know, what different minority groups are doing because it could pose a real serious threat to the Assad regime. Uh, and then the question is, if that if the Assad regime does feel the threat, do they engage in repression like they have before? So far, they've resisted, uh, maybe because they don't think it's going to, they think they can contain it. But there's a question of whether they really can. 
Jack, we also saw three U.S. lawmakers make a visit to Syria this week. Republican representatives French Hill of Arkansas, Ben Klein of Virginia, and Scott Fitzgerald of Wisconsin. It's the first trip to Syria by American lawmakers in six years. What was the purpose of that visit? Well, the the delegation barely got to stamp their passports. They spent just about a half an hour on, on Syrian soil because of security concerns from the State Department, even though they wanted to go further in the, the country. But this trip by more junior lawmakers was really about addressing a drift in U.S.-Syria policy that we've seen since 2019 when, when Trump basically greenlit uh, the Turks to, to go in on an, an incursion of the country. Um, French Hill even coming out and saying during the trip um, that he was unclear what the Biden administration's Syria policy was, uh, how they felt about the Assad regime, especially as we see the Arab League, other factions in the region beginning to normalize the Assad regime after 12 years of war. Uh, So it's really just pushback uh, against the drift that we've seen in American policy uh, and also trying to get more clarity on on how the U.S. is going to treat Assad going forward uh, beyond the sanctions, beyond the international isolation, especially as he's being welcomed back in the region with open arms. Let's turn to Pakistan. Imran Khan, the country's popular and populist former prime minister, remains in jail. On Wednesday, his detention was extended by two more weeks. Khan's being investigated on charges of leaking state secrets, according to his lawyer. While one court extended Khan's detention, another suspended a different conviction he had on corruption charges. Kriti, let's start with what's currently being investigated. What allegations have been made about Khan leaking state secrets? Yeah, a lot of them basically saying that's coming at the same time when he was kind of buying and selling uh, and misappropriating things that were supposed to be in the state's possession, gifts that he got on diplomatic uh, kind of ventures that also came back and, and again, belonged to the government of Pakistan, the country of Pakistan. Apparently, a lot of these are going back to his term in 2018 to 2022, where during visits abroad, he kind of collected and then sold a lot of the merchandise in Dubai specifically Things like watches, jewelry, perfume, dinner sets, all worth uh, almost $500,000. And that was just the start of it. Now you're seeing allegations, I think over 150 cases being brought on to him, ranging from corruption charges to terrorism charges to, as you said, he's a populist leader, even inciting people to violence, which then uh, ended up damaging some of the state's actual equipment, things like military equipment. So even under all of those allegations, it's interesting to see that he's still actually the leading opposition candidate. So uh, a lot on his plate legal-wise. Or Khan was convicted of corruption by another court. Why was that conviction suspended? Yeah, your question is valid because it is very hard to keep track of There's all this. A lot There's of them so happening. much going yeah. on, and it speaks to kind of the the thicket, uh, the Byzantine um, uh, uh, court cases against Khan. Uh, it's just it, when one pops up, when one is put down, another pops up. Um, basically, there was a conviction, and then a high court in Islamabad over um, overturned or suspended that conviction. The argument being that. Um, uh, Khan had appealed it, uh, saying he needed a chance to defend himself, and the court said, "Okay, you know, you can uh, let's hear the appeal uh, for you on this on this corruption case." So that was specifically related to the corruption case and the three-year sentence associated with it. 
Um, so the, the, I think Khan's team was optimistic that, okay, this means this is a legal victory for us. This means maybe uh, Khan can come out of prison on, uh, on bail. Um, but then there was a this separate state secrets case uh, and a, 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 um, a hearing there said, well, no, we're going to extend Khan's uh, imprisonment, you know, through mid-September, uh, even though this other ruling went down. Uh, and of course, Khan's team, uh, legal team has said, you know, this is this is illogical and unconstitutional that they're keeping him in jail um, after the high court's ruling in Islamabad. But uh there he is in jail anyway, according to uh, other judicial rulings. Let's move on to sports, uh, but not happy news. The Spanish national team's victory at the Women's World Cup this summer has unfortunately been overshadowed by the conduct of the country's soccer federation president, Luis Rubiales. When Spain beat England 1-0 in the final last month, last month, Rubiales, quote, grabbed his crotch in celebration. That's according to Reuters. Then when congratulating player Jenny Hermoso, he grabbed her head and kissed her mouth. Last week, FIFA suspended Rubiales from all all soccer activities for 90 days and opened an investigation yesterday. The head of FIFA wrote on Instagram that Spain's celebrations had been, quote, spoiled by what happened after the final whistle. Creepy, how are people in Spain, especially in uh, reacting to this soccer, this story right now, especially soccer fans? Well, disappointed, clearly. I mean, look, uh, sponsors, players, even sports fans really wanted to focus on kind of the endorsements, the deals, celebrating that would that would follow a World Cup win like this. And I think you put it best in that it's completely been overshadowed, eclipsed even, uh, by this particular scandal. But I think when it comes to kind of the broader population, you have to put this into a lot of context here because uh, Spain is a really interesting dynamic when you look at kind of gender, uh, gender dynamics uh, under... Uh, legal or under law, I should say, back uh, during during Franco's time, this kind of idea of women as as a second tier citizen was was baked into the law. 50, 60 years later, now you're actually seeing uh, Pedro Sanchez, the prime minister of Spain, really invest in gender reform. So this is more than just a sports story. This is truly at its core a political story as well and a legal one, not just uh, for for Rubiales himself. But if you actually look at the way the law has been written going back to 2016, 2017, when you saw the Me Too movement uh, in in the U.S. and then around the world, Spain didn't have as strong of a response uh, relative to some of its other their peers, then they came around and actually wrote in their legal doctrine the very first uh, kind of legal wording around affirmative consent. Essentially, yes means yes and no means no. And and that's something that you haven't actually seen in other countries where it's actually been written into the law. Of course, it was met with a lot of legal pushback as well. But now the expectation here is that for Rubiales and for the broader law and politics itself, this is a, this is a conversation that ends in, in the courtroom. Jack, what do you make of this moment in Spain in terms of its cultural, as Sucriti's point, like the cultural significance of this moment? Well, it's 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 very significant, and it it shows a, a culture change in in the country. Um, you know, just just away from uh, the the culture of the past, and of course, I mean, this is this is just a scandal that um, really, as you said, has has rocked the the football world in Spain, and again, just just shows. Um, that these types of things aren't aren't acceptable in in Spanish culture anymore, uh, and it's it's just a wider public uh, message that's that's being sent out by what's going on, especially uh, after the Women's World Cup. 
Let's end looking forward for a moment, uh, Uri. Um, in India, New Delhi is preparing to hold the G20 summit next weekend. President uh, China's President Xi Jinping is expected to skip. What are we expecting out of the summit? Yeah, I was really surprised uh, that, by the reports that Xi Jinping won't be going to the G20. This is significant. This is the first time Xi Jinping has not gone to a G20 meeting. It became a leaders' meeting in 2008 uh, amid the financial crisis, and Chinese leaders have gone every single year. Um, so the fact that uh, he's not going. He is sending the Chinese premier, um, but it's not the same as having the leader there. Um, that's something to really watch out for. Um, one of you know my colleagues at the Atlantic Council, Hung Tran, made made a point that you know he sees this as as part of a larger a larger new development with the Group of 20, these are the world's largest economies, that it's almost becoming a mini United Nations where um, powers are kind of vying against each other and competing against each other. You have um, countries like Russia and China. You have the United States and other European allies, Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's a real mix. Um, and he also feels that, you know, this this is a time where uh, India and China are v- vying for to be leaders of the global south, you know, countries in Latin America, Africa, etc. And so India, this may be an effort to, you know, China just came back from a summit at the, in, of the BRICS group in South Africa, where they expanded it, uh, and China really led that effort. So this may be, you know, that was their moment in the sun, and this is India's moment in the sun, and China didn't want to be part of that moment in the sun is one way you could read it. Um, so it's something to really watch closely. And if, if one other thing to watch closely with this group of 20 meeting is, will anything significant come out of it? I'm not sure given all the dissension within the group. Well, we will cover that on the Roundup next week. At the beginning of the show, I promised you cheese news. We do not like to disappoint, so... The world record for the most expensive cheese was broken this week. A 4.8-pound wheel of Cabrales blue cheese from Asturias, Spain, which was auctioned this week for more than $32,000. The buyer was Spanish restaurant owner Ivan Suarez, truly the big cheese. A big thank you to our panelists this hour, Kriti Gupta, Bloomberg with Bloomberg TV and Radio, Uri Friedman, Senior Editorial Director at the Atlantic Council and a contributing writer at Atlantic Magazine, and Jack Dadge, Pentagon and National Security Reporter at Foreign Policy. Mike Kidd is our sound designer and engineer with help this week from Kellen Quigley. Chris Castano is our digital editor. Maya Garg is our senior managing producer. Aileen Humphreys is the editor and producer of 1A On Demand with help from Matthew Simonson. Barb Anguiano produces our podcast. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios. Thanks for listening. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL. Because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The economy right now is bewildering, impenetrable, inconceivable. Not when you have the indicator podcast in your ears. In under 10 minutes every day, we simplify the complicated news like... How does inflation drop? What the heck is a SPAC? Why are trendy little high-fiber sodas suddenly dominating store shelves? And more. Listen to the indicator from Planet Money and NPR. 
There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts.